You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter. On today's show, I speak with Mitchell Jones, who's the co-founder of Lentable. Lentable is a company that's just over a year old and raised a reported $4.5 million, according to Crunchbase. Mitchell was previously founder and CEO of Parable, another fintech company, and before that, worked at Goldman Sachs. He's gone through both the Alchemist and Y Combinator accelerators, both very prestigious. And on the show, we discuss why people don't save more for retirement and how Lendtable helps with that, recognizing a good fintech product idea, challenges of founders who don't come from privileged backgrounds, including managing your personal burn rate and runway, advice on how to fundraise, including creating FOMO, and Mitchell's offer to personally help other founders. Please stay tuned. Mitchell, welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks so much for coming on. Hello, hello. How's it going? Great. I'm really excited to share your story and to learn more about Lentable. But let's start with why do you think people don't pick up free money that their employers offer them? (laughs) Great, great question. So very quickly, Mitchell, uh, I'm one of the co-founders of Lentable. We actually do exactly that, Miles. We help people get their full employer 401k match when they can't afford to get it themselves. And it's a really, really good question because one in four Americans today is not getting their full 401k match. That's about $24 billion every single year. And really, the reason hits me very close to home. The reason isn't because people don't care about free money, right? It isn't because they don't need an extra $2,000, $3,000 in their pocket. The real reason is actually almost always going to be a structural thing. It's going to usually be around liquidity. So what we've seen is that the reason why people don't get their $3,000 employer 401k match when their employer is like, hey, I'll give you $3,000 to put it into your 401k was the same reason my parents couldn't. When every single dollar you have goes to feeding your kids, when it goes to paying your student loans, when it goes to making sure you have a roof above your head, $3,000 for retirement sounds great, but you will always sacrifice that income that you could have for later to, for, in, in order to use it for today. So the reason why we see most folks don't take uh, free money is because they're actually doing a rational thing. And that is a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. And at the end of the day, liquidity needs or first order human needs will always come first. And that was one of the things that inspired us to do Lintable was specifically that is that most folks actually want to be able to save for retirement. Everyone would love to retire, but it's just simply a thing of like, I just don't have extra money to put aside for that purpose. When you're liquidity constrained, when you don't have cash, you have to focus on the short term. Absolutely. And actually, there's a, it's funny that 
one of the big things we talk about is that that is actually the most economically rational thing to do. So a lot of times when we first heard this, it was like, oh, clearly these people don't care because they're just leaving thousands of dollars on the table. And, you know, I knew from how I grew up that it it was probably not that. And when we went and did a bunch of digging, talking to hundreds of people, we saw it definitely wasn't that. It was always the same type of thing. There was some liquidity need that was coming first. And that was always the reason why, whether it was, hi, I've been working at Walmart for the past 13, 14, 15 years, but my hours are getting cut during COVID. So I can't even contribute to my 401k like I used to, or I just graduated and it would be awesome to start doing all this stuff early, but genuinely I need to get these student loans paid off. So let's back up for a second. 401k is a defined contribution plan that is sponsored by an employer where employees can choose how much they want to put in and employees often will match it. Is that the right way to think about it? Exactly. Exactly. It's very, that is probably the most perfect. Actually, you know, you should probably put the product because that is as simple as it gets. It is a tax advantaged retirement account and the government mandates that businesses of a certain size have one. That being said, there's been a lot of changes in the retirement landscape over the past, I would say, 50, 60 years where uh, a lot of folks used to have pension plans and things like that. And now the onus has been put on them to learn how to invest their own money. And I think that's a pretty bad rub because the average individual does not really have the time to both be a full-time parent, a full-time worker, and then also truly understand what is the best diversified portfolio and how much should I be putting away for the long term for retirement. So as pensions went away, uh, defined contribution plans like 401ks started to exist. So how does Lendtable, your startup, help people get this retirement money? Great, great question. So in the simplest of forms, what we do is we give you access to the money that is rightfully yours from your 401k match if you can't afford to get it yourself. So here's what that looks like. Let's just say uh, your name is Jill and she works at Walmart, right? Jill has a $3,000 match from Walmart, right? Meaning that if Jill puts $3,000 into her Walmart 401k, Walmart will match her $3,000, okay? Jill would love to have that extra $3,000 because she knows a few things. One, $3,000 in an investment account will grow over time and it'll compound. Uh, And two, she wants to make sure that she has a safety net for when she retires. However, Jill specifically has a few needs that are going to come first. She is living in a very expensive city, so she's paying her rent. Uh, She also still paying off student loans. And at the same point in time, She just simply needs to get on her feet. So Jill can't afford to take $3,000 out of her um, salary in order to go towards her 401k. She needs that money up front. So what we do is we say, hey, Jill, we will offset the money you need to put up in order to get your 401k match. So if Jill needs to put up $3,000, we will offset the $3,000 that she needs to put up. So now Jill has the same amount of income that she has to spend that she had before Lentable existed, but she now also has a $3,000 match from her employer, right? So that's the money that she was not able to get before. And it is from that money is where Lentable's model works. So 
when Jill either leaves her company and has access to her 401k, or if she has what's called an in-service withdrawal capability, Jill simply won her money is vested and rightfully hers, gives us back our piece or our, the portion of money we gave her, and we take just a little bit of what we helped her earn. So we participate in only helping her if we help her make money, right? So that's the only way. And if it doesn't happen in that way, right? So let's just say that she leaves before she gets her match. It is all good. We just take our money back and we don't make anything. Our main goal, our express goal is to put more money into retirement accounts so people can have long-term financial health. Now, lending someone money so they could invest might be risky, except for it's the free money, the match from the employer exactly. that makes the system make sense. I think it's brilliant. And it's one of those ideas when I first heard it, I was thinking, darn, why didn't I think of that? It's funny because, you know, when I, I mean, I have to give all the credit to, you know, I remember, you know, my first idea before I even started working on Lentable, I was actually at the time working on a different startup around uh, essentially trying to make a personal financial assistant offered as an employee benefit. And I've been in the fintech space for a good amount of time at this point. And I was finally doing my own personal startup and it just wasn't working out. And my co-founder and I split up and I'd been looking at this issue over and over and over again. And I just needed to look at it from a different angle. And that's where my co-founder Sheridan Claiborne, best guy I've ever worked with. He's one of the most creative people in the world. When he came in and we were just riffing one day when I was looking for a new co-founder, that's exactly like the, the, the feeling you just had was the feeling I had when I was like, oh, I've seen everything in this space. And the one thing I never looked at is lending because to me, lending felt like something who are, that people who are cash constrained should actually be a little bit weary of. And Sheridan comes in and says, well, you know, if there's all this money in 401ks that they don't have access to, if we can get the money to give to them, we can then actually just do essentially what would be a profit share and participate in the money we helped them build. And I was like, Sheridan, I've never thought about this before. This is crazy that everyone's not doing this. This is a great idea. We should start iterating on this and figuring out a few things about it. So I'm, I'm with you, man. It was, it was one of the most refreshing things. And you do see a lot of businesses doing similar types of things now, right? I think the, the biggest one you have, is, although not in our category, is, is you know, a business like Lambda School, where they're giving you thousands of dollars up front under the idea that they will gain in your profits when you, get a, when you uh, start working later, right? So they have a lot of businesses that are doing that type of kind of model, and we just want to do it in a similar way, but just specifically for helping people and helping, honestly, what is the retirement crisis in the United States? Well, I'd love to back up and hear about your entrepreneurial journey. You mentioned that you were working on a different startup before. How did you decide to be a founder? Great question. So there's, I think, many different routes to being a founder. My route was more of I'm obsessed with financial inclusion and solving the problem. It really roots back to kind of my early days when I was still in school. So for me, I'm originally from uh, Ohio, so a, a Midwestern city called Dayton, Ohio. I'm super proud of it. Shout out to anybody who's listening from Dayton. And I grew up in a, you know, lower to middle income black community where two working parents and the thing they always told me to do was get a good education and save your money. 
And when I was growing up, I didn't have a ton of money to save, but I did know like I can get a good education. So I spent a bunch of time trying to get into good schools and stuff like this. And I ended up going to Yale, which was probably one of the, 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 <laughs> the crowning achievements that I've ever done in my parents' eyes. And, you know, as soon as I got there, I was like, I don't know what I want to do. So I had a few mentors who said, you should check out, you know, a finance internship. And what I did was I ended up getting a, an investing internship at Goldman that summer was it was my sophomore summer this was back in like 2013 i was like oh wow so when people say when my parents were saying save your money investing is a lot more than just putting money in a checking account that's not saving the right way and i had this fear that my parents did not know what it, it meant to truly save in that way because i had never heard anyone where i was from not just my parents i had never heard anyone talk about investing that way so I went home to after that first summer and asked my parents, can I see how they were saving the best of their money? And all of their money was sitting in either checking accounts or the money that was in retirement accounts had gotten rolled over from previous companies and was sitting in money market funds, which is effectively the same thing as a checking account. And it was at that point I recognized my parents wouldn't be able to retire. And that set me off. I was like, there's got to be a way to solve this problem. This is, there are hardworking people who have been saving like my parents for 15 years at that point, and they're not going to be able to retire because they've missed out on all the compound interest. So I became a student of just investing and financial inclusion. I took the next few years to just learn about every startup that came out in the space, whether it was Wealthfront, Betterment, Acorn, Stash, all these companies that were trying to help the average person invest were in tech. So that said, that told me I needed to get into tech. So I ended up not taking Goldman after my second summer, just applying to a bunch of tech companies. And that's how I got into tech. From there, I took jobs that got me closer and closer and closer to learning how to build things. So I became a product manager. Uh, I was a fintech product manager at Facebook with cybersecurity at Dropbox. While at Facebook, we were actually building digital wallets for developing economies. So helping folks who had never used a financial service online before send money to their friends and family, pay their bills. And I was running that product for LATAM and APAC. With that, I still always knew that before I was able to start a company, I needed to know how to build. I needed to be a student of the game. I needed to be a student of fintech companies and all those things. So once I had learned enough, I set out with my first idea, which was Parable. And it was a personal financial assistant offered as an employee benefit. And that was kind of where I started. And the insight there was that, you know, the average person needs a hybrid between uh, what is an automatic invested portfolio, but also just an understanding or a financial system that just tells you the right thing to do at the right time, right? Because it's not just about investing. There's many other things. There's debt, there's savings, there's, there's all these other parts. And while a lot of folks really, really enjoyed using that service, the challenge was in order to keep a service like that going, you got to make money somewhere. And I did not want to charge the end user. So I tried to actually go through employers. And the hard part about employers is they're getting inundated with so many different employee benefits. It was really hard to make any motion. So my co-founder and I ended up kind of reassessing things. We ended up, he ended up going to work on some other things. And I just was like, you know, financial inclusion is what I care about. I'm in this space for one thing and one thing only. I will be a founder in this space doing this thing. This is what I believe in and this is what I care about. I wanna help my parents. I wanna help people like my parents. So what that meant was I had to go back to the drawing board and it was hard. 
right? Like I was probably only at about like, I maybe had about a month of runway left before I would have had to go back to working at a, at a, at a, at a nine to five again. But you know, you just have to every single day, wake up and give it your hundred percent and just keep meeting people is the other big thing about startups. So for me, I had to find a co-founder. I truly believed I needed one to start the business and I didn't want to do it alone. You know, there was just one of the four, most fortuitous days of my life where, you know, an old friend from Dropbox connected me with Sheridan. We riffed for hours. We stayed until 3 a.m. in a co-working space. And that was kind of when we first thought of the idea of Lintable and I pivoted away from Parable. So I know that was pretty long, but I think the big thing here is that the best founders are obsessed with a problem. And for me, I'm just obsessed with helping people save and invest their money. That really comes through. And thank you for sharing that story. It wasn't too long for me. I really want to dive into a couple of different areas there. One is you, your passion about financial inclusion and helping other people save. Yet you just mentioned your personal runway was down to almost nothing, one month. How do you, how do you square that circle of, how do you think about as a founder, your personal financial situation versus this big mission of everyone having a better financial picture? So it's, it's, that's a phenomenal question. And I will tell you this, one of the things that I have a, a larger appreciation for is that one of the, and I mean, this is a whole other topic, but one of the ways in order for us to m allow more people to become founders is we have to be able to enable them to be able to take on more risk. So for me, I had essentially just saved up effectively like a war chest from my time in Dropbox and Facebook, where I was just not spending a lot of money so that I could have enough runway to be able to say, look, if I have, if I go after this and I do a startup for about a year and a half or two years, I will be able to just kind of live very, very, very strictly and very frugally. And I should then be able to give it my all for two years before I would need to go back into the workplace. And luckily, when we, we did Parable, we got into an accelerator and they gave us a little bit of money, <laughs> not much, but uh, a little bit. So that helped as well. And what, what I wanted to do was I had to recognize, though, look, look, Mitchell, other folks might have a long time to do this, but you got you got a shot clock. You got to be cognizant of that shot clock. You know, I think I, like I'm going to be honest with you, when I was on that last little bit of month, I was I, there were days where I was just frustrated, man. It was like the story was not supposed to end like that. Right. I had just started. Right. I felt like I hadn't even cracked the surface of what I wanted to do. You know, there was a moment where I remember laying in bed one day and I was just so I just woke up and just had so much anxiety over the fact that I was like, how is this happening and how is this done? And I just had this moment where I was like, I just got to keep getting up and just keep trying this. And I got to finish the race. And I got to do every day, like it's the first day, like I had just raised a $10 million round from Sequoia, I had to keep running at it, as if I had no idea of the fact that I was about to be done in a month. But I think it starts with when you set out to be a founder, you need to understand and be very honest about how much runway you actually have before you do it. Because if you don't have enough, it can take a long, startups are not a just upward trajectory. You're going to have lows. And if you don't account for that, you can end up in a very tough spot. So it's really important to, you know, not just believe that you're going to be the best because 
if you work at it and if you're obsessed with your craft, you can be the best. But you also have to say, like, what is it going to take for me to get there? How much runway will I need? Will VCs be willing to listen to me? Have I taken the time to actually vet my idea before I do this? So there's things you can do before you, let's just say, leave your job that can de-risk whether or not you're going and barking up the right tree. Well, such great tactical advice embedded in this big picture vision, which I think is one of the, the paradoxes of being a founder is that long-term orientation, but very nuts and bolts short-term, what do I have to do today? I also really liked what you were talking about. You had this, this obsession with what problem you wanted to solve, but you weren't stubborn. I mean, you, you switched from one startup to another, from one co-founder to another. So this advice of keep going doesn't mean to ignore uh, the world and reality, what's what's your learning along the way. I, I love how you encapsulated that in the story. Yeah, it's one of the best things I actually probably took away from uh, being a product manager was I always tried to have this idea of what I call the quote unquote 33% rule, which is that once I think I've seen 33% of a data set or a thing or of the decisions that need to be made, I need to make a call. And if you keep waffling on it, you're going to waste a lot of time. So if you have more than 33% of the information or have seen more than 33% of it, you've taken too long. And if you've seen less than 33% of it, you've actually not seen enough. And when it came to my startup, you know, I had kept getting into the same place where I kept losing uh, customers uh, because remember we sold to businesses. I kept getting to the same part of the conversation and I sell the same data point over and over and over and over again. It just felt like for, for employers, they were like, ah, but we already offer a 401k for our employees. We already offer these things. This thing seems like a nice to have. And once I had seen that enough times, the data told me, all right, cool. You've given us a really good run. You need to start thinking about other ways to retool this, right? Because it's important and it's very hard, right? Startups are filled with survivorship bias. You have some stories of people who just trudged on the same path for three, four years, and they get this breakthrough. You have other people who recognize this wasn't even the right thing to do, and they pivoted because they just saw something that made more sense. My belief is there's no right answer, and it's more of an art than a science, but you got to listen to your, honestly, you have to listen to your gut. You have to also just be as objective as you can about, have I seen enough information to say there might be other things that make more sense? And you need to always be challenging that assumption. And you need, and the way you challenge that assumption is you gotta tie it to some sort of metric, right? You gotta try it to traction. You gotta try, you gotta tie it to something. Cause if not, you'll keep just giving yourself an out. You were talking about intuition, gut, and analytics. I mean, you referenced the secretary problem, that algorithm of like roughly one third of the set that you reviewed and then make a decision. I mean, that's that's intense math and, and computer science there. Thank you for being a loyal listener. One thing I'd ask is please consider joining our giving circle. We support startup tech nonprofits with our donor dollars to act as the angels to seed new organizations seeking to scale and do good. So please go to startupsforgood.com and click on giving circle. I'd love to chat a little bit about who gets to be a founder, because this is one of the other issues that you brought up, that uh, when you look at who is a founder in high-tech entrepreneurship, 
it really heavily skews to people whose parents have financial resources. They're able to take that financial risk that you talked about. What, what do you think could be done to change that? This is a phenomenal question. It's one that I spend a lot of time with. So I'll say right now, actually, if if anyone out there is a founder and is trying to understand how to start, just look me up on LinkedIn, Mitchell Jones. I'm pretty active. Add me, send me a message, say I heard this podcast and I'll do whatever I can to help. And Miles, it's a very, very complex problem because there's a lot of angles of it. So this first one starts at the founder level. The people who can go into entrepreneurship are usually the people who have larger safety nets, right? They're also the people who have an ability to be able to have what I'd call soft landing, right? So let's say you have a lower income founder or a black founder or a female founder. If they had a really good job, the idea that they are necessarily going to get another good job by just leaving their good job, going and being a founder and coming back that doesn't necessarily equate. There's like a, there's a risk there, right? So that's one thing that people worry about. The other one is just simply about literally the runway problem that I was talking about. You know, my runway was what I was able to save from my first three years of working, right? Like that was my runway, right? There wasn't anything that my parents would have been able to give me for any type of runway. So there's one issue of, you know, if you don't get funding right off the bat, you're going to have to take a risk. The other issue is with who gets VC dollars, right? And that's the other hard part is that a lot of times the folks that get VC dollars are not necessarily the folks who don't have enough runway on their own without the dollars. So those two things are very big issues that have to both be tackled. So from the side of creating systems that actually work is number one, we have to encourage more folks to go into entrepreneurship. But the way you have to do that is, first of all, VCs have to put their money where their mouth is, right? And this is not an argument of do it for charity. It's an argument actually of a lot of the best ideas come from people who have actually had the problem. The reason why Lendtable made so much sense for Sheridan and I is my parents technically had access to a 401k match my entire life. And they literally never used it, right? A lot of VCs didn't even know that was a problem when we were originally pitching to them. We knew that not because of the fact that we are these just really, really smart founders. I mean, I'd like to think that we are, but also because of our experiences. So when you're a VC, there's sometimes this hesitance to put money towards folks that don't come from the traditional background. But those are exactly the type of places where the ideas that are outside of the box come from. VCs got to put their money where their mouth is. The other thing is, I think we need to really start encouraging entrepreneurship at some of the younger levels, right? I know in college, I thought, <laughs> I remember when I had an offer from an offer in finance, an offer in consulting and an offer in tech. And I knew I wanted to start my own company. So the clear choice should have been tech. But I looked at technology and entrepreneurship as a risk to my career. And I almost didn't choose it because I was like, well, I'm getting off of this ladder. So I think there's also a responsibility of, you know, both companies, but also schools to show that technology is the future. And also it's kind of the present. And we need to really start moving people towards that way. So if I had to sum it up, there's a few things you have to do. Number one, 
VCs have to put their money where their mouth is. Majority of dollars still go to a very, very specific type of founder. Number two, we got to encourage entrepreneurship at the earliest levels possible, right? Show that that's a, a thing. And then number three is on founders like myself to show, look, I'm a young black founder and I've, I've had the hard time in the struggle piece, but also we do have people out there to help. And also not just other black founders, right? There are a lot of different founders who want to help with this issue, but they have to also be a part of the change. They have to also give their time. They have to also advise. They have to also help on these things. Inspiring words, inspiring words. I think the other thing that I think a lot about is healthcare, particularly in the U.S., since it's so employer-based, it, it can be a real hindrance to people wanting to take the risk of going out on their own. Absolutely. It, it's, you, recognize, you don't recognize all these frictions until it comes time to be a founder. You're like, oh, wait a minute. So am I going to not have health care? Oh, okay. Well, if I am, that's $400 a month out of your run rate bare minimum. Okay, cool. Rent's coming up every single month still. That's not changing. Oh, I have even less time than I did before. Um, oh, we're going to try to raise money. If you try to raise money and you sound like you need money, that's exactly when you don't get any money. So then you have the stress of the fact that like, I need to raise as fast as I can, but then you don't have time to build a good enough product yet. So then you're like, you're trying to pitch on having maybe a weaker product market fit, but you, you have a time, you have a shot clock on your head, right? So there's all of these things that start compounding on each other that kind of, exacerbate this problem, right? So you really have to create structures that allow people to, to take the risk, right? I think that's why accelerators can be a very strong way for a lot of folks to go is that, you know, there's always gonna, there always needs to be a question of the equity trade-off that you're gonna do. But for somebody who does not have much funding or much runway, it can be a really, really nice way to say, oh, okay, this gives me a, enough money to at least for the next X, Y, and Z amount of time, vet whether or not this idea is gonna work. But even that's not enough. There needs to be more. So would you recommend accelerators for first-time entrepreneurs? Is that what you're saying? I would. I think it also, though, it depends on your case, right? Like if you have, if you have bootstrapped a company and you already have $500,000 in ARR, you probably could raise a round without one. And you've probably already found some level of fit that will allow you to raise money to do this yourself. I think if you've never been a founder before, there's a value actually less so in learning how to be a founder. I think you can only learn that by doing. And there's a value in having a cohort that you can say, we're sticking this out together and we're all in the struggle. We're all on the path. We're all grinding it out together. I think the other value is if you, if you, if you are strategic, you can leverage all the fact that they have demo days at the end usually where you're going to be in front of a ton of investors all at the same time. Knowing that, right, the way that a, a really good founder raises money is they pitch the strongest three or four pieces of their business and they create FOMO or fear of missing out in the investor. Well, one easy thing of FOMO is if you have 100, 300, 400, 500 investors all looking to make an investment on the same day, that creates a lot of FOMO. And that's exactly how a demo day works. So yeah, I, I would I would say that I am I'm positive on them from the sense of they can help you raise money if you strategically uh, use them the right way. But more importantly, it's an experience where you're going to move as fast as you can 
And you're going to be around a lot of other people and you get a network of really, really awesome founders, either sometimes working on similar problems to you or sometimes different. The thing I wouldn't necessarily suggest them for as much is if you are using them to learn how to be a founder, that is not the best use of your equity. It's truly not. Uh, I don't think that that's the purpose of them and that's the goal of them. So you're saying the goal of an accelerator is to help you create that FOMO. Yes, it's to accelerate your business, right? It's to say, you are going to spend the next three to six months to move as fast as you can to show you're going to get all this time just to work on this idea that you've had. We will give you our resources to help you get there. But this is not just, hey, we're going to use this time to learn. Here's how we do in these situations. You always have people you can go to, but it's not school, right? So for younger founders, if you are going to go into an accelerator thinking it'll be school, I don't think it's as much of that. It's it's more of this is time for you to validate your business and get the traction to do it. That's why they're usually almost always, you know, check-ins and meetings where you have, I'm going to get to X number of customers or X number of users by a certain time. And you have these check-in meetings that one, hold you accountable, but two, kind of gives you a, a community of people doing the highs and lows. So yeah, I, I would I would lean that it's less about them as a learning tool and it's more about them as a, an acceler uh, an accelerant of your business, and then also a way for you to potentially leverage the demo day at the end uh, in, as in order to fundraise. Um, so yeah, so we so Lynn Table went through Y Combinator, and I would definitely say for us, you know, we had raised some money before, but the thing we really took away from YC was on move as fast as you can during the program, but be very cognizant of start to build relationships with investors a little bit before. Um, demo day comes up. Yeah, you mentioned like a lot of investors looking at demo day. That's the first order thing that I think is probably pretty obvious to people. Okay, that puts a big spotlight on you. That'll help you raise. But the second order effect, which I don't know that everyone thinks about, is because everyone knows that demo day is coming. Lots of investors try to invest in those companies that they're interested in before demo day, which drives exactly. a whole other dynamic. Exactly. And, you know, the success of your company in the long run won't, won't be tied just to, you know, whether or not you raised before a demo day or after. I, I think there's actually probably very little correlation there. But what it does do is what does tie to your success is whether or not you were able to raise money at all. Right. And the really valuable part of it is that what good founders recognize is one, numbers make everything better. But number two, Numbers without a story can also be very difficult in the early days. What you have to recognize is getting an investor to understand why they're missing out on something big is your whole goal, right? And there's a lot of different elements of FOMO that you can create. Some of it's that we have proprietary technology. Some of it is that our numbers are so good, this is clearly going to rocket ship because we have the unit economics. Sometimes it's we have a once in a decade team and this team is going to figure it out. Right. Sometimes it's this market is too big. You have no investments in this space. So, you know, you missed three companies before and we're the fourth one, but we're going to be better than number three and two. And that means that we're going to actually win a lot of this market. Right. But no matter what the case, you have to recognize and to be a really good, I would guess I would say to be a really good test taker, you should think like the test maker. So if you're a good founder, you're thinking like the investors. So if an investor knows that demo day is going to have 500 people or 300 people or 400 people, or however many it is, if I can get into a company beforehand, right, 
I don't have the pressure of having to jostle for really good companies before. So if you're a founder, you know, sometimes there's a lot of strategy you can employ to say, hey, look, we, we were really excited about Demo Day, but because we like you a lot and we think that we're going to have a very popular Demo Day, we would love to actually have a discussion with you beforehand just to give you guys a first look. And if you come in a little bit beforehand, you can, we can discuss more. You can have more flexibility in what you invest, how you invest in valuation, because we know on Demo Day, we're certainly going to have our pick. And that type of FOMO will drive people over the line. So yeah, it's, it's a combination of a few things. It's definitely also an art. You're sharing some of your tactics here, and thank you for that. Are you willing to share your results? Like how much have you raised and how did it go? Who, who's in? Yeah, no, it, it's uh, thankful, thankful to say um, it, we, we did a good job. So total to date uh, through our seed, we've raised about $6 million, a little bit less. I think we're at like 5.7 or so. So that was really awesome. Some great participation from awesome investors. So Streamline Ventures, Foundation Capital, Soci Capital. We have a lot of really, really strong players on board that have been super helpful, have been day one with us. Uh, we also have a lot of really awesome angels, right? The chief operating officer of Impossible Foods and the former CEO of Dropbox. We have, you know, the chief operating officer of Venmo. So a lot of really awesome people invested, invested in our round. And a lot of that was because of a few things. One, people really loved the idea of this is just, this just makes sense, right? People got it, right? What we were doing. The other thing is we just highlighted, look, Here's where fintech has been going. Here's where we're seeing the new wave of, of fintech going. And we think we're squarely in this wave. And here's the path to where we're going, right? Not just where we are. Here's the path to where we're going. And do you want in on the train or do you, do, do you not? And when you put it on the table like that and you say, here's your chance and here's your opportunity, right? You, you force people to, to say, you know, do I fundamentally believe X, Y, and Z things that they laid out? Do I fundamentally believe in the team to get us there? And then finally, do I fundamentally believe that um, I could be missing out on the next big thing? And if you've successfully done that, you will be able to raise money. That's great. Are you willing to share more about uh, Lendtable today? Any, any metrics? Yeah, so definitely. I won't be able to share everything uh, just because, you know, uh, we're, we're growing and you never know who's listening in. We've done a ton. So we're growing right now at about anywhere from on any given month, 15 to 30% month over month. We have positive unit economics, which is very, very good. And for us, you know, we have focused a ton on just really also just growing our user counts, right? That's the thing we care about. So we don't want just 15 month over month growth in our revenue. We also want that also additionally in our users, right? Because there's kind of two types of users we could get. Some users have very large matches, so we could theoretically get a ton of dollar value, but very few users and other users have smaller ones. So we care a ton about helping individuals and less about just the dollar amount that comes to that as well. Good, lucky to say we're both 15% month over month in revenue and actually even higher in user growth, right? So we're around 30% month over month in user growth. So that's really, really good for us. All that with positive uh, unit economics. So that's very good. Another thing is in terms of the team size, we're at about eight now. When we left YC in the summer of last year, we were at two, just my co-founder and I. And really from here, we've, we've just built a ton of technology, right? There's a lot more to build, but we've just built a lot of things, right? Like when we first were in YC, our whole, our whole product was a type form page. 
we would get all of your information about your match on a type form that you would fill out. And then we would give you a call, right? And we'd schedule a time with you. And, and now, you know, we can get someone through our whole process in five minutes, right? We can verify that you work where you work. We can verify exactly what your 401k match is. We can get you to sign your contract all online and we can get the money to you, right? So we've built a ton of things in order to do that and to do that process fast, but also filled with trust. Because the big thing for us and the thing that I never want to lose is user trust is probably the most important thing for our business. So overall, the numbers are very strong to the point where you're always balancing. Does it make sense to just continue being heads down? Does it make sense to go and try to raise another round? And, you know, you're always looking at market dynamics. The market's pulling you one way. And yeah, so we've set ourselves up to be in a very good position to do all the things that we know we want to do in our second and third iterations of our roadmap. And the way you do that, though, another piece of feedback for, for any, any founders out there, you get to all of your objectives and milestones by actually being very hyper-focused. Only pick one or two problems at a time and just do those problems very, very well. Because the numbers will follow if you focus on the few key issues at hand. Anytime you're talking about month over month growth, you must be very focused on growing. Amazing. When you think about the future, everything goes well five years from now, 10 years from now, what is Lentable doing? What is it like? What's the vision? Great question. First and foremost, in 10 years from now, there will be 40 million Americans who have billions of dollars more in their retirement accounts. That's number one. There will be not one in three Americans in safe for retirement that won't be the number anymore, right? The thing we care the most about is changing people's retirement picture. So that's the first step. Really, the reason people come to work for us is that we're mission-driven, that we care a lot about the goal, and we're obsessed with helping people's picture. We want to make it impossible for them to mess up their finances. We want to make it impossible for them to be on the wrong track. And so that's goal number one. Goal number two is, you know, for, for both myself, but also more importantly for my employees, I want us to be on a stage ringing a bell. You know, the goal for us is go to the moon, right? The, um, we see the path. We see that the, we see the, you know, both internally, we see, oh, this has, this has legs. So like we can keep this going, but also just in five years, I want Lentable to be a unicorn. I want us to be having that IPO day. I think back to when I was at Dropbox and, and they IPO'd and what a, what a time, right? Like there have been people there for so many years of the journey. You really create this huge family and it's an awesome experience. And it's one that I want to make sure that I can have for my family and, and for the people I love and care about, but more importantly, for all the people who are, are, are working on this just as hard as me that have come after me, right? So that's, those are the, the main things there. And obviously, of course, I could say some things that are like, yeah, we're gonna be working in these business lines at that point. We'll be partnering with these people. And, you know, we'll have this many dollars of revenue and, and all that stuff. but. You know, I think the, the things that matter the most when you look at life are, number one, did you make a positive impact while you were here and, and help make someone else's day a little bit more delightful? And number two, you know, what were the memories you made along the way? And, you know, if in five years from now, I'm reflecting on every single time I've had with Lynn Table, with my, with my family, that is my, my employees and, and my co-founder Sheridan, and I'm reflecting on, on those things, that's, that to me is, is awesome. Right? Like that is, that is what you do this for. Right. You do this to obviously my belief is that with software, you can change a lot of things in the world and you do it for that reason. But number two, you do it because of the fact that it's 
you're, you're building a family as, as, as you're going through the whole process. So I want to be ringing the IPO bell, man. Aha, here's to your IPO and here's to making millions of Americans billions of dollars richer. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely, Miles. Thank you so much. And everybody, if you are not getting your full 401k match, 403b, TSP, or employee stock purchase plan slash ESPP, please visit lendtable.com. It is um, a very, very simple service. We give you the money you need to get your full employee benefits. If you uh, want to talk to me about entrepreneurship, please reach out at, uh, on my LinkedIn, Mitchell Jones. Awesome. Thank you. And Miles, once again, thank you so much for having me. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.